But I just think that this prime minister is doomed. I don't see him surviving. I can't see the May elections, the local elections, which incidentally the whole of London local councils are up. I can't see that being anything but a disaster. And I think he'd be gone for the middle of the summer. And actually, Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast, where Nigel Farage and Nikolai Hubble give you a unique take on what's really going on in the world of finance, investing and politics. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to This Week in Review with Nigel Farage. Nigel, before we get to the politics, as fun as it might be, let's quickly discuss this huge correction that's taking place in stock markets. Officially, the Australian and Japanese market did close down more than 10%, which is the so-called correction territory. The US markets did hit that level, but then bounced within the day. What narrative are you buying into that, that explains all of this sudden pressure on stock markets? Well, over a decade of continuous rises, for one. <laughs> I mean, you know, things can't go up forever. Um, uh, but also, look, there's a lot of things going on out there. I mean, there is a, a finally a realisation that inflation is real which has taken a heck of a long time for anybody to understand. Governments, um, presidents, prime ministers have all been in denial. We've been banging on about this since January of last year, quite consistently. Obviously, the Ukrainian situation, I mean, potentially uh, the most serious military conflict in Europe since 1945, if it kicks off. I'm still not sure it will. Uh, but I, I sort of think that Putin's winning without doing anything. Um, but obviously, that's overhanging. Uh, the markets too, um, and quite a lot of political instability. An American president who is just not in control of his own party, you know, he can't get stuff through Congress, uh, the midterms are coming up, it, it looks inevitable that the Republicans will take both houses, probably with quite solid majorities. So you've got a US administration going nowhere, unable to pass legislation, um, Equally, within the European Union, a vast divide that has now opened up between Germany and everybody else, uh, particularly uh, the Baltic states, Poland, uh, you know, there's other NATO members. And as for the United Kingdom, well, uh, Fred Carnot's circus probably is about the nearest thing. So I think those three factors are weighing on markets, but certainly in terms of the tech sectors, um, uh, you know, Nasdaq stocks, I mean, we've been saying for a heck of a long time, these things are very, very dangerous indeed. Yeah, this seems to be exactly what you're worried about at UK Independent Wealth with Rob Marstrand, exactly this sort of correction. Yes, and that's why, and that's why all the recommendations Rob's put forward you know, have been solid companies that actually make things, don't have huge levels of debt, um, and in most cases pay out quite healthy dividends. So we've really been very, very small C conservative for the last year because we've been expecting this kind of correction to happen. The sector that is performing well, though, is the oil and gas sector, which is wonderfully ironic, I think, uh, given what's going on. But there's, there's actually a statistic I found that I've got it here on my phone because I wasn't able to find it on Twitter in time. And it's the, uh, the number of 10 baggers, which is 1,000% gains that have happened in the UK compared to the US market. And while, of course, the UK has had a lot less 10 baggers, it has had as a percentage of the stocks listed much more. Yes. So it's had a 6.9% of the, of the sample size were 10 baggers, and in the US only 5.7. So it seems like the UK is actually quite a fruitful market for investors. Well, yes. And I mean, look, there are sectors like tech, for example, 
um, where the UK is attracting the lion's share of the money that is coming into the European time zone. Uh, and, and whilst those numbers may be peanuts compared to San Francisco Bay, still something is happening in that. So, so fintech, tech, all these areas attracting money. And I thought very interesting and really worth us noting this week, a little notice report from EY, which used to be called Ernst & Young, they rebranded for some reason, um, and a report from EY saying that their survey, and this is a global survey of big business managers and investors, 90% of them saying that if they weren't in London, they're going to set up in London, and if they are in London, they're going to build up in terms of size. So all the nonsense from the Lord Heseltines and goodness knows who, the financial services in the city would be in trouble with Brexit. Actually, we are beginning, at least in that sector, we're beginning to bear some very real fruits. So for all of those reasons, whatever happens, you know, I still absolutely insist, even with government in chaos, even without us taking advantage of some of the, the supply side reforms that Brexit allows, we are still relative to France, Germany, Italy, in a very good position if you're taking a five-year view. I've always wondered about that. If, if there's some sort of uh, border or issue in terms of the financial markets between Europe and London that wasn't there before, how many European firms would end up having to open and, and move more to London as a result of losing as easy an access as they used to have. But let's leave that aside. Let's move on to the big story. I know you're rubbing your hands as much as I am about this. Um, it's all gone a bit bizarre. Up until now, as far as I was concerned, none of it surprised me. None of it really annoyed me. You know, I presumed that they were up to exactly what they turned out to be up to. But on Monday, it was my daughter's second birthday and all three of us attended and that was it. So this is starting to get a bit irritating to me. And I'm, I'm starting to feel like you know, one of those supposed red wall voters or blue wall voters, as they're now called, who, who are going to be quite angry. Yeah, look, I mean, the, the two big things to say about the UK government. One is that even before Partygate began, which seems like it's 30 years ago because it's every day and it's endless. But even before Partygate began, there were major questions about the direction of this government. Nobody voted Conservative to see them putting up taxes. Nobody voted Conservative for them not to start cutting back and simplifying regulation, 50 years of it, from the European Union. Nobody voted Conservative for a bonkers net zero strategy, which just sees us closing down British industries and moving them to India and China. And by the way, that's not a comment saying we shouldn't think about the environment. It's a comment saying that if you just simply move your factories to other parts of the world, there is actually no net gain in terms of CO2 anywhere. Probably anywhere. worse. Yeah, well, almost certainly worse, because what actually then happens is steel is produced in India under lower environmental standards and the goods are shipped all the way back. So, so you know, there's, there's a lot of nonsense being talked here. <laughs> but also a feeling that with Brexit, we'd hope that a new kind of politics was coming. We've actually gone back to the Eton-Oxbridge chumocracy based in Whitehall, based in Downing Street. Uh, I, I mean, in many ways, Boris is in a circle, uh, looks a narrower group of people uh, than even David Cameron and George Osborne's. So a real disappointment and a sense that so much of what they talk about are not the real issues affecting everyday lives. So even before Partygate, there were many people who voted Conservative for the first time ever saying, what the blazes have we done? This is not what it's all about. <clears throat> and then with Partygate, 
Something far more serious. Now look, you know, every night on the telly, I get MPs on who support Boris, MPs who don't support Boris, and I want people to hear the arguments. But actually the debate that's happening in Westminster about who's the alternative, has he really done that much wrong? It's a completely different debate happening in the country. And the debate in the country is about trust. Did we know that Boris was a bit of a wrong one? Yeah, of course we did. Everyone knew he was a bit of a wrong one. But if you start to think he's an outright liar, that becomes very, very difficult. Classic example in the last 24 hours, <clears throat> the pen farthing, Nauzad charity, cats and dogs, you know, they were airlifted from Afghanistan. You know, we also know many human beings who wanted to leave Afghanistan didn't get out. And the suspicion that Johnson or Mrs. Johnson uh, was directly involved in that. He denies it point blank on camera, yet we see an email yesterday from Lord Zach Goldsmith's office saying the PM has approved this. It's one little vignette, but it's an example. This guy, when he talks to the camera, when he talks to the Commons, doesn't tell the truth. And please don't tell me that you walked in. And forget the birthday cake. You know, that was organised for him. He walked in. He couldn't do much about that. But the hundred people invited to a bring your own booze party in Downing Street Gardens on a lovely May evening, by all accounts, you know, trestle tables covered in sausage rolls, sandwiches, bottles of booze. Uh, and we'll find out at some point at what time the revelers left. But I'll bet you it was the early hours of the morning. And when he says he thought it was a work event, it just doesn't pass the credibility test. Next. So, so look, <clears throat> you know, you can read the newspapers every day if you want to. I wouldn't bother um, because until we either get the Sue Gray report or the Met Police report, we're not going to know anything particularly other than, other than Mr Cummings' regular leaks. But I just think that this Prime Minister is doomed. I don't see him surviving. I can't see the May elections, the local elections, which incidentally the whole of London local councils are up. I can't see that being anything but a disaster. And I think he'd be gone by the middle of the summer. And actually, when it comes to the markets, when it comes to the value of sterling, when it comes to investment into the UK, it's going to be a good thing, not a bad thing. And the markets are already beginning, I think, to take that view. We need a bit more stability, a bit more certitude, and a bit more focus on, on, on bringing the benefits that Brexit brings. So that's my view. I can't see him surviving. One of the things that struck me about this is that they didn't believe in the restrictions they were putting on place on the country. What does that say about those restrictions and the nature of those restrictions? If you know they were terrifying everyone, but <coughs> yeah. they were not actually scared. Uh, and, and, and I'm not so much interested in whether people will obey the next time around. I'm interested in were these restrictions that we all lived under, and you know, some of us following the rules, some not, were they even, even you know, the right thing to do? I think we're going to look back on lockdown as an historic mistake. I mean, it, it might have been very understandable for the first few weeks. There was something very new. Uh, we didn't know what it was. We didn't understand how it was made up. We had no idea what the symptoms would be or how to treat it. It may be reasonable for a couple of weeks to have shut down to find out what it is. But, but for restrictions to have rumbled on for the best part of two years, uh, and by the way, in some, parts of the, in some parts of the world, like New Zealand, restrictions getting even tougher and stricter, um, we'll look back on it as an historic mistake. I was talking to Professor Carol Sikora, 
who has been one of the leading cancer experts at the World Health Organization in the past, he's convinced more people will die because they've missed cancer diagnoses than ever will die of or with COVID-19. So we'll look back on it. I think it's a very, very grave error. And can I just say one other thing? And, you know, I'm not um, a vax sceptic. You know, I'm not anti the measles, mumps, rubella, jab or any of this stuff. But I think there are very real questions now about the booster, uh, the booster being jab number three. Israel is now administering the fourth jab. And guess what? COVID-19 infections are going through the roof. And there's now a debate in Israel. If you keep jabbing people, do you actually start to reduce the body's own immune system? Do you start to damage the body's own immune system? So I, I think we need to have an intelligent, balanced debate about it. But the idea we're going to have the giant pharmaceuticals jabbing us every six months for the next 10 years, I think needs to, we need to have a proper conversation about. Yeah, and that sounds uh, like a bit of a, a nightmare in terms of a lot of healthcare issues. But it seems to me that the key issue is the vaccines of, of you know, save people from, from dying of COVID, but they haven't unlocked the economy in the sense that lots of people are still getting COVID, lots of people are stuck at home, lots of people are getting hospitalised, a lot of people are, are still dying. So they haven't delivered on the, the promise of getting us to an endpoint in this pandemic, even on a less well, dangerous variant. Well, hang on. I mean, look, you know, there's 155,000 people, according to government figures, that have died of or with COVID. Guess what the average age of those who've died is? It's 82 years and five, it's 82 years and five months, which is actually higher than the average life expectancy. So a sense of perspective is needed on that. And look, you know, I mean, the way this ripped through the care homes was irresponsible and wrong and should never have happened. But even so, that number does give you a sense of perspective. What's even more interesting, and this is a, this is a debatable figure, all right, and I accept, you know, you can use statistics to suit arguments and all the rest of it. But how many people have died without, without an underlying medical condition? Now, a freedom of information request the other week suggested 17,000. Now, that's still 17,000 people who clearly were quite fit and have died either of or with COVID. And I'm not underestimating that, but we need, again, to get some sense of perspective. That figure may well be too low, but if you think about that number, don't take it literally, but think about that number, add it to the average age of death, uh, see the fact that the fourth booster isn't stopping anyone catching COVID in Israel. Um, I think we have to have a real debate about perhaps a very different course. And the interesting thing here is this. I see Europe heading towards mandatory vaccinations, all sorts of protest movements across uh, Europe going on. Uh, New Zealand, well, they've clearly gone mad. I mean, someone's put something in the water. There's no question about it. I mean, now, if you come into contact with somebody with COVID, it's a 24-day isolation. I mean, you couldn't invent it. Australia, not far behind. Canada, pretty much as bad. America and Britain, are actually leading the debate towards sensible use of science. The Supreme Court has ruled in America. I think elements of our free press, and goodness me, they're not always perfect, but elements of our free press and 100 backbenchers on the conservative benches have turned the debate around. Uh, and, and so I think we're actually beginning to get some more common sense being taught, albeit, as I, as I say, when we look back on lockdown, we'll think it was an historic error. Do you think there'll be a, a witch hunt in the civil service or in the scientific community or the political community? Oh, no. 
no, no, everybody will keep their jobs. Oh yes, even those that organize booze ups in the basement of Downing Street on the eve of Prince Philip's funeral, they'll get a wrap over the knuckles and, and the worst that'll happen to them is they'll have to move departments. And that's why, Nick, I'm a radical. That's why I think actually our entire system of government needs a complete radical change because nobody, but nobody is ever held accountable for anything.